0: Virginia Tech faces Pitt in a pivotal Coastal Division matchup. UVA looks to keep its momentum going against Duke, and college basketball time is almost here, signaled by this week's ACC Media Day event in Charlotte. All that and Aaron McFarlane's puppy chow, this week on Teal & Barber. Welcome in to Episode 62 of Teal & Barber, the richmond times dispatch and richmond.com's virginia tech uva and acc sports podcast i'm mike barber acc beat writer for the paper and joining me here as always my co-host the 13 time sports writer of the year and the virginia sports hall of famer david teal david how are you good afternoon mike safe travels home from charlotte yeah everything was fine until i got back we had a small house fire situation here um this is an interesting lesson our dogs like to jump up and slap the controls on the stove with their paws. And one of them managed to turn on the stove and sitting on one of the burners was my daughter's plastic lunchbox, uh, which quickly turned into a small stove fire and and filled our house with smoke incredibly quickly. Uh, So that's been the excitement here this morning.
1: We had a very tame morning compared to that, and I am very grateful for such.
0: Yeah, it, It's no fun, and I'm, I'm hoping we can still see the smoke coming out of the windows from our house, and I'm hoping that's a sign that it's all leaving, and, and we'll be able to breathe a little easier uh, here uh, in, in the not-too-distant future. David, it was uh, we're, we're going to talk more about the basketball part of Charlotte here a little later in today's show, but it was fun to get back with those coaches, with all the other reporters. I, I enjoyed the day. Did you?
1: I absolutely did. I I always do. It's just good to see folks catch up, just kind of talk on the side, see what people are thinking, and then in the the interview sessions themselves.
0: Yeah, and and you you know, I I sense that even coaches who might not always love (laughs) spending time with the media or this much time, a full day with the media, I got the sense that they appreciated all of us being back together, and um, I saw a lot more smiles and, and a lot more interaction, I thought, from the coaches that, than maybe I'm used to.
1: Well, p- part of it is the ACC pared down the coaches' obligations. <laughs> so, so for that, they they were quite quite thankful.
0: Tony Bennett came walking by in the hallway at one point. And he had this. Grin from ear to ear. And he looked at me and he said, I'm only here for like half the day. And he was very, very excited about the new schedule. And Brad Brownell pointed out uh, to you and I right on, on our way into lunch, yeah. uh, Brad Brownell, the Clemson coach said, you know, they used to get there close to six in the morning and mm-hmm. have to stay till close to six at night. So, um, yeah, maybe it's not that they don't enjoy the media, they just don't enjoy 12-hour doses of the media, which even as a media guy, I understand that.
1: Absolutely. And, and Brad was telling us that he was getting ready to jump on a plane real quickly, get back home to have practice.
0: Yeah, busy day, and it's a busy time of year because basketball is right around the corner. But, David, we're in the heart of college football season, and uh, I think we both love that as well. And it's an absolutely critical game uh, upon us here for Virginia Tech. The Hokies, they had a great chance to beat Notre Dame last weekend, kind of wore down in the fourth quarter, giving up the the final 11 points to lose that one. Uh, That game was huge in the eyes of the fans and national TV, all those kind of things. But this weekend's meeting with Pittsburgh – it's the more important game, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, it's more important. Uh, the, the Panthers don't match Notre Dame in, in terms of eyeballs and, and national brand, but they are a coastal division rival. And if the Hokies aspire to represent the Coastal in the ACC Championship game, uh, then beating Pitt, which is the the ACC's hottest team right now. Not undefeated, mind you. That would be Wake Forest, but Pitt is the ACC, especially on offense, is the ACC's hottest team, and that's that's a division rival, and it's a it's a game that Virginia Tech most likely needs if it's going to win the Coastal.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, I don't. I know it doesn't mean all that much, but the Panthers are currently wearing the the increasingly fickle tiara as the the beautiful bell of the coastal division. I mean, I know it changes every week who we think might be the best team, and uh, as soon as we anoint somebody, they usually promptly give it back. And uh, but it's possible that this pit team, maybe they got their stinker out of the way with that Western Michigan loss.
1: Well, when you're averaging fifty-two a game, and that leads the country, fifty-two points. And I believe the Panthers are in the top three in total offense. And I think we mentioned this on the pod last week, Mike. Kenny Pickett has 19 touchdown passes and one interception. I mean, that's crazy. And he is is making money on a weekly basis, except last week when the Panthers were idle.
0: Yeah, maybe that's the best thing to happen when you uh, ascend to the level where we think you might be the best team in the Coastal. If you happen to have your open date, <laughs> yeah. you get to keep that, that crown or tiara for an extra week there. And um, But, you know, conversely, from, from Pittsburgh's point of view, you go to Blacksburg and win this game, uh, you certainly are in control of your destiny in the division. Um, yes. So this is one of those dangerous spots where, as Virginia media, we're looking at, hey, this game is just crucial for the Hokies, and I think Pittsburgh's got the exact same motivation.
1: Sure, it is. And it's it's their second division game. They've already housed Georgia Tech down down in Atlanta, and yeah, I think Pickett through for five touchdowns in that game. And Jordan Addison, the the wideout, is averaging an ungodly number of yards per catch. I believe it's hovering around twenty. has a a bunch of touchdown receptions. He'll take the top right off your defense and will be a challenge for Jermaine Waller in, in that secondary on Saturday. And let's not forget, Mike, the Hokies are going to be playing that first half Without their middle linebacker, Dax Hollifield ejected for targeting there late on, on Notre Dame's uh, defining drive there in the fourth quarter.
0: Now, David, let's talk a little bit about that Notre Dame loss because defensively, Virginia Tech played extremely well for most of three quarters. Uh, and then kind of right there at the end of the third quarter, Kieran Williams had that 10-yard touchdown run, uh, which if you get to watch on replay, I, I encourage Uh He broke at least three tackles, maybe four, made another guy miss, stepped over a guy. It kind of felt like the moment that Tech was literally and figuratively losing their grip on that game defensively. In the fourth quarter, uh, they gave up a a ton of rushing yards there in in that final quarter. And then when Holyfield went out before the final two drives, um, then they started giving up passing yards, too, Mm -hmm. and seemed to be lost on both sides of it. So, David, what what did you see at the end of that game? Was it as simple as wearing down, then compounded by losing Holyfield? uh, Or or was it a bigger issue?
1: I don't know if it was a bigger issue. I just momentum flipped. Notre Dame changed quarterbacks, went back to Jack Cohn, the starter, who had been who Brian Kelly had benched after a very ineffective start he he went to Tyler Buckner the true freshman and Buckner promptly led touchdown drives i believe on 3 of his first 4 series but then he threw the pick 6 to Waller threw another pick and that's when Brian Kelly made the move and and they needed to throw cuz they were down you know they're down 7 or excuse me they're down 8 and, and need a touchdown and a two-point conversion to to tie, and that's exactly what they got. And then on top of that, a, a field goal with, what, 17 seconds left to, to
0: win it. Yeah, and, and it's easy to look at the defense breaking down there at the end and really through the entire fourth quarter. But David, this is where I, the offense didn't help them out, right? Like there was no eight-minute drive to salt away that fourth quarter and that lead. And and if there's a takeaway to me that's concerning going forward, it was their inability to kind of put the game away, not necessarily with a big play or big stops, but just playing keep away. And, and they didn't seem to have that bullet in their gun.
1: They didn't. They hurt themselves, Mike, with two poor decisions on Notre Dame kickoffs yes. by not taking the touchback and failing to return it beyond the twenty. So they're they're pinned inside their twenty. And then as as fans will recall, and I, I I apologize to for harping on this, but Justin Fuente's decision to go for two after Waller's pick six really, really hamstrung his team. And in Monday's presser, he admitted as much and said that he regretted the decision and essentially had been stewing on it all weekend and said his pissed offness had gotten the better of him because he was he was pissed at Gallo for false starting because they were going to go for two to extend the lead from one to three points. And, you know, they're lining up at the three-yard line. It's late third quarter. I don't like the decision, but it's a defensible. But then Gallo jumps now you're on the eight-yard line. And oh, by the way, Braxton Burmeister is on the bench, nursing a short, sore shoulder. So you've got Connor Blumrick in the game. And you're still going to go for two from the eight-yard line? That, to me, is absolutely non-negotiable, wrong decision. You kick the extra point there to go up two. Then, as it turns out, Burmeister comes back in, scores on the scramble, that would have put you up nine instead of eight. That's huge. Yeah, That's huge. That's two scores, not one.
0: And I'm glad you laid it out that way because I didn't have a massive problem with going for two. I I thought it was the wrong thing, but I didn't have a massive problem with going uh, for two originally. When the penalty came, I just assumed it was a no-brainer now that you kick it because Mm -hmm. now it's not just about how things are going to play out. It's about the likelihood of you converting. And the likelihood of you converting the two-point conversion when you move back those five yards, I don't have the statistics in front of me. I'm sure someone does. But the odds go down dramatically. Um, Really, you only go for two there if it's desperation, if you absolutely have to. Uh, You got the penalty. You squandered your chance. Okay, kick it and see where you're at. Um, The fact that they stuck with that call is where I think it's a coaching mistake. I feel Justin Fuente sometimes gets a bad rap. I think he has a lot of 50-50 decisions. Um, that it's not that he's right or wrong, but they don't go his way through <laughs> the way it plays out. But this one I think once you had the penalty, it wasn't 50-50 anymore and and that's why I think it was a really terrible and ultimately costly decision.
1: Yeah, it was stubborn is what it was and as you know as he said on Monday that that's that that's what he thinks too because a- after Burmeister you know has that 19 yard scramble, that should be, A 30 to 21 game. Then when Notre Dame comes down and scores, Notre Dame's not going to go for two if it's down 30 to 21. Notre Dame's going to kick the extra point. So then Virginia Tech would have been leading 30 to 28 with, let's see, with 226 left. 30 to 28 with 226 left. At that point, all you need to do is milk clock, force Notre Dame to to call timeouts, get yourself a first down, Everybody goes home happy. But no, all of a sudden now, that's a 29-all game. The strategy for Virginia Tech's drive changes completely. So instead of running the ball and milking a clock, you've got Braxton Burmeister overthrowing Raheem Blackshear on first down. On second down, he tries that deep ball to Trey Turner that Mm. just missed. But again, that's two consecutive incompletions. No time off the clock. Notre Dame doesn't have to spend any timeouts. And then on third and ten, Burmeister scrambles for nine yards, putting Fuente again in decision mode. Do you go on, go for it on fourth and one from your own twenty-seven? He elected to punt. I think I would have too. In hindsight, obviously you wouldn't, because you know what happened at the end. But uh, to to me, the, the the two point decision was. It was, it was, a, you know, the second consecutive year of poor ga- end of game management, Yeah, you know, and the, L- Liberty last year. I was just, and, and that
0: one, there's so much more in the Liberty game than the timeout on the field goal, right? <laughs> and and that, that I think that fans focus on that timeout. And, and that's one where I kind of am on Fuente's side. You know, I don't know that he did anything wrong with that timeout to try to ice the kicker. And um, obviously it ends up not working out for them, but it's the other moments that lead up to those moments that I think are more um, correct to criticize than maybe the headline grabbing ending. And uh, it it certainly adds to fans displeasure with Justin Fuente. But as we said to start, Hey, win this Pittsburgh game, go win the division, I, I think everything is still right there for them. Um, but if you're, if we get to the end of this year, and and you're weighing the pros and cons of Justin Fuente, I think the way they manage the end of that Notre Dame game is going to fall in, in the negative column for him.
1: Uh, agreed. And and Mike, I know you you know we'll talk with Aaron in a, in a little bit about numbers and such. But I haven't even looked at the lines this week. Do Do you know what the line is on on Virginia Tech Pitt?
0: Yeah, that's it. We'll get into it with Aaron McFarland because it's been moving. It's anywhere from four to six points, depending where you look, which is the first time this year I've seen that with tech, that level of fluctuation. Uh, We're calling it a five point Pitt uh, favorite right now.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly not surprised that that Pitt's a favorite. And, you know, the, the way the Panthers have been knocking people around and the way they just pole the Hokies last season Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at at, at Hines Field. You know, it's a
0: fascinating game. Well, Virginia has now won two in a row, David, in the most unusual (laughs) of fashions. Uh, A week after surviving at Miami, when the Hurricanes missed that 33-yard field goal on the game's final play, this time UVA rallied for a comeback win at Louisville, a win they only secure when the Cardinals miss a 49-yard kick at the gun. I haven't seen many stretches like that, David.
1: No, I I was waiting for ESPN Stats and Info to to tweet something about the last time, if ever, a team had won consecutive games on the final play when the opponent missed a field goal. That it
0: may never have happened before.
1: It, it That would not surprise me. I, I just can't imagine a team having that kind of luck two weeks in a row and for it to, to work that it's, it's the final
0: play. Yeah. Now, David, I will say there was a big difference between the two in that the Miami game, it felt like it was getting away from Virginia. And when Miami missed that kick, it felt like, whew, you survive because Mm -hmm. had that game lasted another four minutes, you're probably losing. Louisville was a totally different story because Louisville took complete control of this football game, David, in in a third quarter where it was just disastrous for the Cavaliers. uh, Interceptions, mistakes all over. uh, Terrible defense. They gave up a a long run to Hassan Hall. They gave up, I think, 116 rushing yards in the third quarter. Um, The defense really just kind of collapsing there. And this was a game where Virginia stormed all the way back and um, this was a case where when they missed the field goal, you think like, okay, we, we earned this one, uh, yeah. even though it came down to that missed field goal. That was an impressive comeback, was it not?
1: Oh, it absolutely was. You're down three scores and you, you get three touchdowns in as many possessions in the fourth quarter. Brennan Armstrong just again, working his magic and hitting Keaton Thompson twice on fourth down conversions on the, the, the final touchdown drive. And, you know, whereas Borg Alice from Miami, he doinked a 33-yarder. He's right in the middle of the field and it, you know, hit, hits the upright. You know, the poor kid from Louisville, he's on the hash and it's from 49 yards. Right. I mean, that that's... And I know Turner's a, a good kicker, but still, that that's a big ask for a, a college kid.
0: But also a credit to Virginia's defense that that's where he was kicking from. Uh, <laughs> I don't there. know because I mean
1: they only need they only needed like fifteen seconds to get that far. I what, mean that that was nothing.
0: I know what you're saying, but I, to me, that was the strategy was, hey, if we're going to give anything up, let's leave them with a 47, 48, 49 yard field goal. Let's make sure we're not giving that deep out um, you know, that gets you down inside, make it inside a 40 yard attempt. Um, to me, that was defensive strategy of, hey, if we're going to give up anything, let's keep it in front of us and make sure they're kicking a long kick. I, obviously, you'd love to to stop them and give them nothing. Um, But that was a place where you worry with the way Virginia's defense has played this year, that they're going to make the big mistake. And the big mistake gives Louisville the ball at the 20 or something. Um, Well, They they didn't give that.
1: And and speaking of big mistakes or or the erasing of Sud, how about Darius Bratton's hustle
0: play? Right. So close to a big mistake earlier and and a game-saving tackle. And, you know, I got to give credit. I think, to Bronco Mendenhall because after the North Carolina and the Wake Forest games, games that they got absolutely blown out in, he was playing Brendan Armstrong till the final seconds ticked off the clock. And I was very critical of that. I was very critical because I think it was an unnecessary risk where you could injure your quarterback and, and lose your star. And I still believe that. But Bronco's answer was, we're trying to create a culture where you never quit and you play till the end of the game. I thought, eh, culture, schmulcher, right? You need your quarterback in one piece or your culture doesn't really matter. Uh, But I will say that it certainly looked like he coaches a team that even when they were down three scores in in the fourth quarter, believed they were going to come back and win. They needed every second of the game to make it happen. Maybe he's on to something? Well,
1: yes, he's on to something, but you can establish that and and still be prudent at the end of blowouts. Just because... Bronco Mendenhall, if Bronco Mendenhall had pulled Brennan Armstrong at the end of the Carolina and or Wake games, no one in that locker room is thinking any less of Brennan Armstrong and his ability to lead late drives and win games. Yeah, no
0: one. 100% agree. But I wonder about the other 15 guys who play regularly on offense, if it wasn't more of a setting the mindset for that. Brendan Armstrong's got that mindset, right? He's playing till the zeros come up every time. He's playing to the whistle every time. He's giving himself up to get the extra yard. I wonder if it wasn't about setting the culture for everyone else and Bronco felt like you can't do that if your quarterback's on the sideline. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I disagreed with it at the time. I find it a little hard to argue after seeing that that comeback.
1: I still think we were right.
0: <laughs> we, we usually are. Now, if you look at UVA, David, I, I know those were not pretty victories by any stretch. They, they were just rife with eras, especially defensive eras. But they're back-to-back ACC road wins. That's mm-hmm. the first time Virginia's done that since 2011. This Cavalier team has pulled itself right back into the coastal race, no? Sure. Why not?
1: I mean, we've <laughs> talked about it before. I think it's seven times that a six and two or even a five and three team has won the coastal. So, <laughs> absolutely, they, they can they can get back in this thing and beat Duke. They beat Duke every year. That's this week. Then Georgia Tech comes to town. They beat Georgia Tech in Charlottesville routinely. And I expect they will do so again. I think the Cavaliers are going to be 6-2 and two, headed to Provo.
0: Yeah, which would be a pretty remarkable recovery from, from not so long ago where we were kind of shoveling the dirt on them after the Carolina and, and Wake losses. But you're right. These are two very winnable games. Duke's going to be interesting because I think they're a different team at home and on the road. Um, We'll ask Aaron McFarling about that, too, when we talk about the line in this game. But Duke can be a tough out at home, but they have not put up much of a fight on the road, and they have struggled mightily with Virginia, uh, really, for the last how many years now? So to me, this is a must-win game for Virginia because it's a should-win game for Virginia.
1: Oh, yeah. You lose to Duke at home, and that's your third conference loss. No, you're done. Yeah.
0: You're, you're, and, and, and the same for Georgia Tech, I think. I think it's back-to-back weeks where if you want to be in this thing, yeah. you win these winnable games at home. And mm-hmm. then we'll talk about where you are going forward. So, yeah.
1: and, the, and they're division games.
0: Yes. Pivotal. And you get them at home. Subpar teams. If you are good. You win these games, and and I think honestly, we look around the division. I think the jury's out on everybody on who's good. You know, I think we know who who's maybe not, but the jury is out on who's actually any good in this division. Is it Tech? Is it Pitt? Has Virginia brought itself back into the picture? Um, It's going to be interesting. Now we have certainly seen Brandon Armstrong elevate this team at times, elevate the offense. He's been phenomenal. You mentioned Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh. He's done. The same thing for the Panthers for much of this year and really much of his lengthy college career. And that brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got.
2: Thank you, Mike. Let's do uh, Who You Got. Kenny Pickett of Pittsburgh, who you mentioned, and Brennan Armstrong of Virginia have both put up really big numbers this season. Impressive work. Uh, If your team is down a score with two minutes to go, which quarterback would you rather have leading the team on the final drive? Let's start with David.
1: This is a really hard one. Congratulations, Mike. Uh, Because you really can't can't go wrong. I will side with Kenny Pickett simply because it's so close, but he's only thrown the one interception. I think Armstrong is prone to a little, I think he's thrown five or six this season. Some of them, the ghastly variety. And so I'm going to side with Pickett, but you know, we saw Armstrong at, at, at Louisville, and we, we saw him bring Virginia back at, at Carolina, not in a two-minute situation. But he he'd be a heck of a of a one-a option. But I'll take Kenny Pickett.
2: Okay,
0: David, Mike, it's hard, it's hard to argue with either choice. You're right, and um, I considered what you just said, the, the interceptions, and I, I think Brennan Armstrong's a little more boom or bust but his mobility and his ability to to make plays with his legs um, and his toughness at the end of those plays. We're talking about one final drive here. I want that weapon at my disposal when I'm calling plays or when a play breaks down. And looking back on Armstrong's interceptions, he doesn't throw that many of them in crucial moments, right? He's had a few, but he doesn't throw that many of them in crucial moments. I, I think Brendan Armstrong is at his best when the game is on the line and when the situation is is tough. Add in his running ability, and, and, and I'm going to take Brandon Armstrong, but you're right, if if he's my starter and he goes out of the game and my backup is Kenny Pickett, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> well, both Virginia Tech and Virginia are home this weekend, and uh, David Vegas really, really likes the Cavaliers. He doesn't favor the Hokies. Well, to help us sort through all of the – betting odds for the weekend it's our good friend and the outstanding sports columnist from the Roanoke Times Aaron McFarling Aaron how are we doing
2: I'm doing all right man I had a few uh 50 50 games that have not gone my way lately our, our lock of the week last week was uh Texas and of course that was I was already counting my money with that one <laughs> that's a kiss of death when you start doing that so I tell you what it's been it's been a little rough in terms of um, games that I thought were going to win. I mean, Duke was my, my ACC lock last week, and they took a late lead, and a fumble rolling around. I mean, it's just uh, the loser's lament right now is, is some of these close losses, but uh, hopefully we'll bounce back. Yeah,
0: it's, it was interesting kind of watching those games unfold early on. You know, we're watching. It's like, wow, okay, this is exactly what you were predicting, and then things just got weird in, in both those games, I thought, at the end. I wanted to ask you, because normally we record this segment Monday night. It's pretty you know, early in the week. You uh, very kindly agreed to delay because David and I were in Charlotte for ACC Basketball Media Day. So we recorded this uh, Tuesday evening. And it's interesting because when you're betting, I, I see sometimes the lines move. Um, sometimes it's obvious, right? There's an injury or something and, and that changes things. But what are some other reasons that that lines move during the week? And when should people be Getting in on the action, like should you be betting Sunday, Monday when the lines first post, or or do you want to wait and see where lines move? How does that all work?
2: Uh, my advice would be to bet them when you like them, when they look good to you. Uh, I mean, you know, value is is in the eye of the beholder, right? Uh, obviously, it's, it always feels better to have bet a line and then see it go the way that you bet it. For instance, if let's say you took Virginia Tech minus four and by the time it kicks off, it's Virginia Tech minus six and a half. uh, You definitely feel better about about that choice. And sometimes it goes the other way. But I would I would recommend just just doing it when it looks like a a favorable line for you as to what moves the lines. I mean, there's all sorts of things, Uh, you know, as you mentioned, injuries would be one of them but the, the, i mean you know the biggest thing is just action that comes in you know uh, big bets that are placed that uh, you know by by respected bettors that, that make uh, the odds makers decide well now we have to move it a little in the other direction to tempt uh, some money on the other side so we can even this out or get close to evening it out and then you know then you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to make some money if you're the, if the, you're the bookmaker so um this, this Virginia Tech game uh, Speaking of line moves, I mean, I, I'm looking at some of the, the moves. I mean, the, the the opening line was different in a lot of different places. It opened anywhere from, from four to six in Pittsburgh's favor in a lot of places. And um, – it's fluctuated quite a bit. It's gone down to three. It's gone down to six. I, I don't, I can't exactly give you a reason for, for why that is. I mean, unless, you know, it's things like, you know, we're hearing that Burmeister is going to play uh Fuente says today that Burmeister sh- should be fine to go, you know, well, that makes a big difference in terms of, you know, if you're, if you're starting Knox Kadem, who's a complete, almost a complete unknown at quarterback, I mean, that's going to move the line some, so that would be something that moves the line. But, um, you know, main, mainly it's just money that comes
0: in. Interesting. Yeah. And I noticed that that kind of fluctuation and, and different options for the line. But let's call Pitt at Virginia Tech, Pitt by five. That's what I'm looking at on my board. Uh, what do you like and what do you see in this one?
2: Boy, I mean, everything points to Pitt, doesn't it? I mean, just everything about the way they're playing um, you feel like the Hokies defense in the second half of that that Notre Dame game gave a back a lot of the goodwill it had built in the early portion of the game especially fourth quarter you know they really couldn't do anything to stop Notre Dame near the end there but you know what I am going to go against my my sort of first impression uh, I was looking at a few of the trends you know that Virginia Tech is covered in um uh, in eight of the in eight of the past ten meetings between Tech and Pitt, the home team has covered spread. That's not a surprise to people who followed this series. I mean, the, Heinz Field was a chamber of horrors for Virginia tech for, for years and years. It's last year, for instance, uh, it hasn't been, you know, the, they broke the losing streak up there, but it's still not an easy place to play. Pittsburgh has, has struggled when they've come to, to Blacksburg. Uh, the underdog is 10 and three in the past 13 meetings. We'll text the underdog here. So that's another thing in their favor. I, I you know, I'm going to write about this later in the week, but you know, before the season, uh, you know, Justin Fuente talked about, we asked him about the schedule, because it's so weird having all these home games early in the season, you know, and he said, you know, look, ask me at the end of the season how I <laughs> yeah. feel about it, because I, I don't know that I'm going to like it, because there are all those road games at the end of the season. Well, this, and that's true, that's going to stink, you know, having all those road games going to Miami and Boston, you know, and and, and Atlanta in, in, in such rapid succession, but uh, this is where your weird schedule has to pay off, for you, right? You've got all these home games. You've you, the only place you've gone is four hours away to, to Morgantown. Like you should be able to uh, get some benefit out of that, and and uh, so that's what I'm going to count on here. I'm going to go Virginia Tech thirty, Pittsburgh twenty eight.
0: Interesting, and and then I'm looking at this UVA Duke line, and and I got to tell you, I'm I'm a little perplexed. I, I've got UVA by eleven. We've watched UVA the last two weeks win by the skin of their teeth when their opponents missed field goals now those were both on the road and i know duke isn't very good 11 points here aaron is that number too big
2: oh i don't know that it's big enough honestly huh? yeah i mean i i duke as i said mentioned before i mean duke was my pick of the week last week well that's partly because they actually play well at home and then their matchup with georgia tech georgia tech is a really bad team as a favorite you know they don't cover as a favorite for whatever reason whenever they have expectations um you know, Duke is not good on the road. Uh, you know, it, the Cavaliers, even though the, they haven't been covering as, as, as mightily as they have did in recent years, you know, they're still a good home team. You know, they've covered five of their past six as a home favorite, uh, nine of their last 12 games overall. So uh, I I think, you know, Virginia, they won't need the kind of sorcery they've gotten in the late game uh, situations, uh, and they've been clutch. You know, they've had some good fortune as well, but uh, I think this one will be a lot more of a breeze, 40 to 27 Virginia.
0: Sounds good. And then across the board, what is your upset of the week here?
2: I got two that I'm looking at. One is UCLA. They're catching two at Washington. Washington, to me, is the is the Miami of the West this year. <laughs> you know, they opened with all sorts of expectations, ranked twentieth in the country coming in. They haven't done anything at all, uh, according to. Uh, or relative to expectations, you know, they're one and four against the spread, two and three straight up. You know, the Bruins covered in each past, each of their past four games as an underdog. Uh, I think the wrong team's favorite here. I'll take UCLA in conference. I like uh, BC. I always tend to like BC when they're at home and they're catching points, and that's the case here. They got the Wolfpack coming in minus three. Uh, Eagles have covered in seven, six of their past seven home games. Last eight times, NC State has visited PC. The Eagles are 6-1-1 one and one against the spread. Hmm. And uh, the Wolfpack's 0-6 in terms of covering in their past six road games. I mean, every sign uh, you can think of points to uh, Boston College getting it done here.
0: Good stuff. Well, I always love to find those home dogs. I think that's, uh, when you talk about value to me, that's one of the places you can find it. But sounds good, Aaron. Thanks, as always, for your time. And good luck this week. Thanks, Mike. Good luck, everybody. Well, David, that's the lay of the land if you're betting on college football this weekend. But not too far down the road, it's time for college basketball. And, and we got the the always fun reminder of that by heading to Charlotte for ACC Basketball Media Day. And uh, Coach K's last, the last time for Mike Krzyzewski, Hubert Davis at North Carolina, his first. Uh, what were your big takeaways from the day down there in Charlotte with, with all these coaches and, and a lot of players, too?
1: Oh, There were any major takeaways, Mike. You know, Coach K tended to suck the oxygen out of the room, and and, and rightfully so, his 42nd and, and final season on on Duke's bench, and uh, he won a few games a- along the way. So I I think he he deserved it, and naturally, it, w- it was funny because he was right across the the ballroom from Mike Bray, so he's at one table, Bray's at the other. I think there were half a dozen of us talking to Mike Bray, and there were about 50 swarming Coach K's table. <laughs> and I looked at Bray and said, what's, what's wrong with this picture? And he, he just laughed. You know, he, he spent, what, eight years sitting next to Mike Krzyzewski on, on Duke's bench, uh, eight years that included a bunch of Final Fours and, and back-to-back national championships. And But not only Coach K and Hubert Davis – but, you know, Davis being a newcomer, and we, we might as well get used to this, just the influx of transfers in, in the league. And we, we, we see it at, at Virginia Tech with, with Storm Murphy. We see it at, at UVA with Jane Gardner and Armand Franklin. You know, we're, we're going to see it at every school. At it, Syracuse with Jimmy Bayheim, familiar name, right? Who, who, who comes to the Orange from, from Cornell to join his brother and his father. So every every ACC school will will have a, a, a new transfer at least
0: one. Yeah. I was part of that that pack surrounding coach K and I was able to ask him a couple cuz he wasn't big on talking about, you know, reflection or any of that. A lot no. of the reporters were asking that and I I, I wonder how, how well they know Coach K, or if they've been around him, because right. I think it was pretty predictable that that was not going to be uh, something he was interested. In. But he was very good when I asked him about his plans for sort of the transition to, to John Shire, and and I said I asked him at one point. I said, you know, do you do things differently? Do, do you were you going to take a back seat in practice at times? Uh, are you going to take a back seat in games at times to help bring him along? And and Mike was pretty uh, forceful in saying, no, that that's not part of the plan. He said he spends a lot of time now with John after things. So Mike Krzyzewski runs the staff meeting. But then when the staff meeting ends, he spends 15 minutes with John Shire talking about why he did this, why they talked about that. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski still runs the practice. But then after the practice, part of his time is spent with John Shire saying, here's why we organized this or here's why I changed this. Um, It was interesting because I was very curious about that. Um, Not that I thought that Mike was essentially a figurehead this year. He's going to coach till the end here. It it means a lot to him. And, um, you know, that's why he's back for another season is he wanted to do it again. Um, But it was interesting to hear him talk about kind of his plans for, hey, I'm going to do the job 100 percent, but I'm a little more cognizant of the teaching as opposed to in the past. He said, you know, his assistants are learning by experiencing. Right they're They're there with Mike Krzyzewski. They're seeing what he's doing. But Mike's taking a more of a, a teaching role now of saying, OK, now that we've done it, let me kind of go back and actually give you the here's the why. And, and the, um, I thought that was interesting. And it's such an, a fascinating way to do it. And, you know, Mike said bluntly that he just didn't want to be dishonest with recruits. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't want to have to go to a recruit. And are you going to be coaching? So, well, does he say No. And then are they going to come? Does he say yes when he knows he's not? Does he hem and haw? So um, I give them a lot of credit. I I think this is a good plan, a good way to do it. Um, And I think that John Shire is going to learn a lot this year, just in his role as an assistant, with Mike having that in the back of his mind.
1: Well, and, and not only that, Mike, think of how well this has worked out so far. Granted, returns are early. It's early on election night. But how well this has turned out for Duke... In the short term, because during the, the summer recruiting periods, Mike Krzyzewski did not go out. That was John Shire's deal because John Shire will be the future coach. So to recruit future players, that was Shire and, and his assistants. Mike Shashevsky stayed on campus and worked with the current group, you know, the, the permissible hours that the NCAA allows. So he feels he's much further along with this group, especially the, the, the freshman headlined by Paolo Banchero, who everyone expects will be a lottery pick after after one season in Durham, and certainly farther along further along than last season, of course, because of, of COVID. And I think it's going to be interesting to to watch Duke early in the season and, and to see if there's a little more cohesion because of that extended time with Mike sheshevsky actually coaching them up.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think nobody knows – five, eight years down the line, if we're going to think, okay, John Shire was a great choice and and this was brilliant. But I think the plan they have sets up for Mike to have a very successful last season and John to have a very successful first season. And then everything after that is John and, and where it goes. Um, but right now, I, I to me, it, it, it's it's a really well thought out way of, of doing this. And uh, I think Duke's going to be really good. I, I think people also think UVA and Virginia Tech are both going to be really good. It could be a really fun year here in the Commonwealth. David, let's start with UVA. Um, you know, Obviously, they end their season in the first round of the NCAA tournament, losing to Ohio. If that's your headline or your nut graph, it doesn't sound great. But we were there. We can peel back the layers. We know that this was a basketball team that had to leave the ACC tournament because of COVID. We know this was a team that didn't get to practice, really, before right. they went to Indianapolis for their first-round game. Uh, still, the guys we talked to, they said that that loss has really motivated them going forward.
1: Yes, it, it has. And, and, and understandably so, because they believe, and I think they're right, they were better than that. I mean, I... I, I Surely, no team has ever had the lack of tournament preparation that the Cavaliers did last season. They they couldn't practice for some of that time. They didn't play after that after that Syracuse victory in, in the ACC tournament. It was unprecedented, like so many other things during during last season. So, yeah, I think they have every right to to believe that hey, that wasn't us. And yes, the roster's turned over and there's no Sam Hauser and there's no Jay Huff and there's no Trey Murphy and transfers have left and transfers have have come in. But uh, I believe, you know, Virginia's finished in the top five of the league, 10 consecutive seasons. Mm -hmm. Is anybody going to bet against Tony Bennett?
0: Well, and here's the thing that made me feel more confident about them as I walked away from, from Charlotte. At one point, Tony said, you know, I'm not sure where we're going to get the offense. There, there's things that are missing. They don't have a ton of perimeter shooting. They think that Jaden Gardner is going to give them some inside pop. Uh, Armand Franklin certainly is a talented scorer, the transfer from Indiana. Um, they believe Beekman is going to take a step forward. Caden Shedrick is going to take a step forward. But I remember Tony Bennett saying, very clearly, you know, this is going to be a team that has to be good defensively to kind of carry us till we find our offensive identity. And I said, well, if you're banking on that, I feel pretty good, right? <laughs> I feel pretty good uh, about Tony Bennett and defense, but particularly with this group. I think Kihei Clark and Reese Beekman are two of the better on-ball defenders in the ACC. And I'm, I'm writing a story right now about Caden Shedrick and his potential to develop into the kind of backline defender that Isaiah Wilkins was, who's ga with the team now, and that's certainly been a help. Uh, yes. Keel Mitchell, that kind of a player at the back line. So if you're telling me Virginia will be really good as long as their defense can carry them early, I, I like the odds of that.
1: You know what else I think Virginia's going to be this season, Mike? I think the Cavaliers are going to be just a shade tougher, just... Have a little bit of an edge on the interior that was lacking. I mean, Jay Huff and and Sam Hauser are incredibly gifted players, but they weren't built physically to just go into to to the to the paint and just spread out and move people away and grab rebounds and such and I think w- w- with Gardner and, and Shedrick and, and, and some of the other, I think this can be a tougher, stronger team on the interior.
0: Yeah, and I think that will be a, a big factor. And um, Francisco Cafaro is about as <laughs> much yeah. of a Jack Salt type as, as we've seen in this program since Jack Salt. Uh, so that's that's going to be a, a big deal too. Now, how about Virginia Tech? Because, David, I got to tell you, I mean – the expectations for the Hokies are sky high and they've got this interesting feel, right? They've got the feel of the mid-major that keeps all the seniors and juniors, but those are also ACC level talented seniors and juniors. I really like this team.
1: As well you should. I think my, well, I know Mike Young likes his team a lot. Or he wouldn't have scheduled the, the, the way he did. I mean, they they've got a they've got a challenging non-conference Slate. You know, they're gonna they're gonna play Memphis in Brooklyn. They're gonna play Saint Bonaventure, the reigning Atlantic Ten champ and the preseason favorite in the Atlantic Ten. They're gonna play the Bonnies in in Charlotte. I mean, that's two really strong non conference games o- away from Castle, and they they also have the uh, the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Obviously that's a game made for TV and out of their control, but that's at Maryland. So strength of schedule when it comes to the Hokies' resume will will serve them well.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And, and Kevi Aluma, uh, David, I mean, he was very good a year ago, obviously. I think he, he might be the most established star player right now in, in the ACC. How good can Kevi Aluma be for this team?
1: I think he can be – well, he's going to be, in my mind, he's going to be first team all ACC. And I'm going to vote him preseason player of the year. I, I do. I think he's the best returning player in the league. Now, does he turn out to be better than Paolo Banchero? Mm, probably not, but he's going to be the leader of this bunch and he's got a lot of pieces around him. And yeah, I, I certainly have the Hokies peg for top four in the league.
0: So I wonder, as you say that, who else you got up there? Because I, I think you know most people expect uh, Duke... Um, to be the favorite when the voting's done. Um, I think Florida State mm-hmm. is still – I think Notre Dame and Mike Bray, I think he's got a good team coming back. Who, who do you like, um, maybe other than than some of the obvious?
1: Well, I, I, I've, t- t- to me, the, the top three will be Duke, Florida State, and, and North Carolina. But, yes, I, I would agree with you about Mike Bray and, and his group with – Apprentice Hub and Nate Lashevsky and just all kinds of, of experience. Brad Brownell, I, they're always sneaky good, and they're coming off an NCAA tournament team or a tournament season. I was talking to Donna Zatota of the Syracuse Post Standard yesterday, asking her about Jim Bayheim's bunch, and, and she said they are going to score a ton of points, you know they've they've got the Bayheim brothers, they got Joe Gerard coming back, they've got the transfer Cole Swindell from from Villanova. Her just primary question is, can they guard anyone uh, in in the zone or otherwise? But uh, you know, if you're looking for teams a, a, a little off the radar. I think those, I mean, Syracuse, Clemson, and Notre Dame would be fine choices. I might otherwise have mentioned Louisville. I just think there's too much drama there for my taste (laughs) surrounding Chris Mack with his early season suspension, which I believe is for six games and includes uh, a a tournament matchup with the Richmond Spiders somewhere down where it's warm in the islands. I, I forget where that event is.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you say about Syracuse, because I had a long talk with Buddy Beheim and he said he thinks this is going to be the best defensive team he's played on in a while. He said he feels like the guys in there right now are very comfortable and intuitive in the zone, and he really likes where they are defensively. Certainly, nobody can argue with what they can be offensively, so... um you know, that's another team right there that, that I think uh, has a chance. And, and I do think that Louisville, you're right, that it, it is always a soap opera there. But I do think they have a chance to be uh, very good as well. And um, it's going to be an interesting year. You know, Tony Bennett said that, hey, they won the ACC last year, regular season. The ACC was down. And he made the point, the ACC was down, but still pretty good, even in a down year in the ACC. How about nationally? Do we think that the – sounds silly to say – the ACC is back? Are they going to be back to where they're kind of revered at the level of being the the number one or number two basketball conference in the country?
1: Probably TBA, but my hunch is no. What was it, two or three years ago when there were three ACC teams were number one NCAA seeds? This, this particular group of teams does, does not have that feel. Um, but, you know, it's always about how you, how you do in, in, in non-conference and th- those tournaments early in the year and those, those neutral court matchups and the ACC Big Ten Challenge. That's why the, those games are, are fascinating to watch and, and very interesting to the selection committee because that, that's measuring your strength against your, your peers. Those are the teams that you choose to play. Because you, you have to play your conference rivals, your non-conference schedule, who do you choose to play, where do you play them, and how do you fare?
0: Yeah, it's a fair metric. And I'll tell you, I look at this league and I think the top six teams in my mind, Duke Carolina, Florida State, uh, Virginia Tech, UVA, and, and Notre Dame, I think they're all in that discussion for a one-two seat obviously it's October 13th so check back with me in, in a two months and I may have a completely different take on that but um, I think this has a chance to be a really good year for the ACC I think they've got talent I think they've got some veteran teams like we talked about with Virginia Tech um, and I think they have a little more depth at the top um, yes I think Duke is, is, is the clear one but I think that there's a really strong group one through six Um and that's why I think to, you know to be a top four or five team this year, it's going to be a fight because I think there are, I think Clemson, uh, Louisville, and State are right there to crack into that top five. So um, I look at this conference as maybe nine teams vying for those top five spots. And that brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It.
2: Thank you, Mike. Let's stick with that uh, top five idea. You've got uh, high expectations for both UVA and Virginia Tech this basketball
0: season, so Take it or leave it. Both the Hokies and the Hoos will finish in the top five in the ACC. Let's start with Mike. I'm actually going to leave it. And I'm going to leave it in kind of surprising fashion. A statistic that David mentioned. How many straight years has Virginia under Tony Bennett finished in the top five in the ACC, David? Ten. Ten. I think that streak ends this year. Wow. I think that streak ends. I don't think they have a bad year by any stretch. Uh, But I think that Duke, Florida State, Carolina and Virginia Tech. I, I I really feel that strongly about Virginia Tech. I think they're locks to be the top four. And then that fifth spot, it's a fight. Notre Dame, UVA, Clemson, Louisville, State. It's a lot of competition for that last spot, which is where I think Virginia uh, falls. Now, that being said, I think this is a Virginia team that may have the chance to, to do the old um, way better at the end of the year. And, and maybe they're a team at the end of the year that makes one of the deeper runs in March Madness, but I don't think this is a regular season title kind of team. Um, Again, I think they're going to be really good. I think they're going to be right there for five, six in the league, Uh, but I think the streak ends. I think tech ends up in the top five, but I think the who's miss it.
1: Wow. Okay. David, I'm going to take it. Uh, I, I do believe Virginia will extend that streak to 11 seasons. And I believe that Virginia Tech will finish among the, the top five for the third time in four years, which just goes to show how spoiled we are mm-hmm. here in, in the Commonwealth by the two ACC programs. You know, the last four years, they've been really, really good. You know, the, the COVID year was, 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 a, a, or the COVID year when the tournament was canceled, Mike Young's first season in Blacksburg being the exception when, when the Hokies really struggled. You know, the interesting thing, I think we're both going to vote Duke number one in the preseason poll, and we're fairly certain that will be the consensus. Care to guess from the last time Duke won the ACC regular season?
0: I, I don't know.
1: 2010.
0: And that's a drought when you're a program like Duke, right?
1: Yeah. Last time they won it
0: outright? 2006. But that goes back to, I think, what you brought up earlier with Mike Shashevsky That's such an interesting point. They've almost been that late gelling, late bonding, what I said I might see from UVA this year. Mm-hmm. And maybe this year with what you were talking about, getting that team together earlier, getting more Coach K time in the summer. Um, maybe this is a, a, a great way to send out Mike Krzyzewski, uh with a regular season title and then whatever they're able to do. I, I think they are certainly talented enough to be a Final Four team. Yes. Um, but I think, like you referenced, they might be closer to that form sooner than what we're used to seeing with, with all the one-and-dones that Duke attracts.
1: Agreed. And, and and they've got some experience coming back, Mike. Yeah. You know, Wendell Moore, you know, this is his third year. This is Joey Baker's fourth year. You know, they, 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 they've got the Jeremy Roach, the point guard, back for his sophomore season. And they brought in two graduate transfers And they've got some dudes now who have played. And and to me, it's very reminiscent of the 2015 group that won the national championship. Where you know you, you had the headliner freshman, you had Jaleel Okafor, who was the ACC Player of the Year, and you had Tyus Jones and Justice Winslow, but you had those older cats like Queen Cook and Emile Jefferson, who were were such vital components of that team. And j- just from a from a roster makeup standpoint, I think the '15 squad and this one. Are, are curiously similar.
0: That's very interesting.
1: David, did you get to spend any time with Hubert? Oh, yesterday? Yeah. I, I did not.
0: I'm very curious, because having talked to some of his players, including Justin McCoy, the, the transfer from uh, UVA, um, they're expecting more... Uh, up tempo, which is interesting because I thought Roy, <laughs> I yeah. thought Roy played a pretty fast tempo uh, of basketball. Are you expecting a, a, a visible change in the way that Carolina plays? I, I think there will be. I don't necessarily
1: think it will be tempo. I think it'll be a little more nuanced than that. Uh, I I know in in talking to Armando Bacot, who has Richmond roots, obviously that he he is going to be you know he's he's still going to be in on the low block but the davis wants him to ex- expand his game and be more comfortable taking folks off the dribble uh, from maybe the foul line extended, something that Keve Aluma is really good at and something that Justin Mutz is really proficient at. And so so from that standpoint, I'm going to be interested to see how Davis deploys his bigs because Carolina always has size, but you don't necessarily think of that size as being perimeter oriented.
0: Yeah, and and that's apparently what McCoy says drew him to Carolina and to Davis. The fact that he wouldn't just be used on the low block as a banger, that he would have the chance. It'll be interesting to see because just from the time we spent with Justin McCoy, that didn't seem like his skill set, right? He wasn't a big um, get his own shot on the perimeter, put the ball on the deck and get to the rim guy. Um, He believes he can be that and he believes there are going to be those opportunities the way that Huber Davis wants to play uh, at Carolina. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, when we get basketball rolling, but let's not Let's not rush ourselves there. Let's enjoy football for right now. Right, David?
1: Absolutely. And, and just to finish a, a thought from earlier, Mike, not to completely c- confuse our, our listeners, but we were talking about how things have worked out with the, the shire Sheshevsky succession plan. Shire, since he became essentially the head coach in waiting, Duke has gotten four commitments from some of the top high school prospects in the country for next year. So he's killing it on the recruiting side.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting because my first thought on that was going to be, well, he's got Mike Krzyzewski to, to seal for him, right, to close the deal, um, to say, hey, I'm Mike Krzyzewski, and I think this guy is going to be really good. But it doesn't sound like Mike's had much of a, a hand in the recruiting. So um, certainly the influence there, but that certainly does speak well for, for what Shire is going to be able to do at a program, Let, let's face it, even with the change should be an easy program to recruit to
1: (laughs) yeah it sells itself in a lot of ways
0: little bit well we hope this show has sold itself to you thanks for listening (laughs) you can subscribe to teal and barber on apple podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the td you can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com today's show was produced by dean hoffmeyer teal and barber is a podcast of the richmond times dispatch and richmond.com for David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. Don't leave anything on your stoves, especially if you have dogs around. Please join David and me again next time.